This is The Water Table. A chance to hear the agricultural side of these issues. A place for people to go find information and education. Water management is just going to become even more critical into the future. How misunderstood what we do is. I would encourage people to open their minds and listen to this dialogue. Today on the Water Table podcast, I catch up with Tom Christensen, who has decades of experience working in conservation drainage. Tom spent most of his career in Washington, D.C., and has a wealth of knowledge. We're talking the Conservation Drainage Network. We're talking about how they help farmers um, with conservation needs and how they help farmers navigate the bureaucracy of the federal government. You're going to enjoy the episode. Well, welcome back to the Water Table Podcast. Today I have with me Tom Christensen. Tom is the chair of the Conservation Drainage Network Growth Committee, which is focused on increasing awareness of producer voluntary adoption of conservation drainage practices and systems. This committee has been in operation for two years. Tom, you have a great career. You were in the uh, working in the government, USDA, NRCS. Um, for over 40 years, you retired in 2020 and been working with Ecosystems Exchange and, and other areas here the past few years that I'm sure we can talk about. But welcome to the podcast, huh? Jamie, thank you very much. Uh, great to be with you and really appreciate this opportunity to talk a bit about conservation drainage. Yeah, let's let's just jump in right there. And I think the, the first question is, just because everybody has their own opinion of what conservation drainage means, but uh, what is conservation drainage and what are the benefits on the farm and off the farm? Yeah, uh, great question. So we're really focused on landscapes that are either tile drained or have surface drainage already. And then how do you improve those drainage systems so you can optimize both the crop production and the environmental benefits? So we're really after both set of benefits for a producer and for the larger community. Uh, so really, it entails a host of potential practices, depending upon the site. But it could be, of course, uh, drainage water management, or some know as controlled drainage. It could be saturated buffers, denitrifying bioreactors, and some other practices, and often in combination. But it's really about improvement, improvement of both production and the environmental results. So we have this, you know, conservation drainage, and then we, which is a practice, but then we have the conservation drainage network. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. What is it? What role do they play? Because um, there can be some confusion with all these things starting with conservation. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the Conservation Drainage Network is a national partnership, and it's not an official like 501c3 or nonprofit organization. Rather, it's a true partnership where people have a passion for this issue and how to help producers improve their drainage. So it consists of researchers, largely from land-grant universities, uh, uh, industry representatives, uh, agency representatives, both federal and state, and of course, uh, non-governmental organizations. But the bottom line is they all have a shared passion for conservation drainage, and they understand and recognize the benefits it can provide. And the real key is how do we advance that? How do we educate producers, provide them that opportunity and uh, hopefully they'll adopt these practices and improve their operations through them. Yeah, you know, in, in this particular case in the Conservation Drainage Network, it really does feel like 
it's a a public private partnership that really works because you do have you know public officials that are there you do have the in- industry or university researchers and then you have the industry people that uh you know probably came originally because their livelihood depends on it but they end up forming relationships and they end up um because of their passion for water quality and for um, conservation drainage, they end up, you know, being curious about what are these researchers doing and getting excited and passionate about, you know, maybe another path to get the same results or better results. Yeah, the uh, Conservation Drainage Network just had its annual meeting about a month ago uh, and held it in Maryland in the Chesapeake Bay area for the first time. It was in the east. It's usually been in the Midwest. Uh, but it was interesting because that one was focused largely on producer adoption and bringing the research to the table. And then how do you synthesize that research so that it actually has meaningful use for producers and others? And trying to look at all the different host of barriers there are out there related to adoption. So the emphasis was on how do you overcome those barriers and help facilitate this for producers in a more meaningful way? Sure, sure. So, you know, as we continue to learn about this and try to understand um, who's there? What do they bring into the table? Um, there's a the growth committee within the conservation drainage network um, that was formed and is doing more research. Tell us about that. Why were they formed? What kind of research are they doing? Yeah, the growth committee was formed a little over two years ago, and it was one of six committees that the conservation drainage network uh, formed. And this one was specifically focused on growing the adoption of conservation drainage. And as part of that, we've done a couple of things as a committee uh, over this two-year time. So we've done some survey of Conservation Drainage Network members to assess what their understanding is of the barriers and provided a report on that. And we also worked with the land improvement contractors. Those are the people that, of course, helped to install the practices and got their perspectives on the barriers. And now more recently, what we're doing is we're holding a series of monthly webinars for interested participants and we're doing a deeper dive into these barriers. So the first session, which was held in January, we had some sociologists, including Dr. Jay Arbuckle from Iowa State University, and got a sociologist perspectives on adoption barriers. Then we had a session for um, practitioners, those people that actually assist the producers with design and implementation. We then had a session with producers to hear from them. And then more recently, we had one with industry representatives and NGO representatives. And then the fifth and last one will come up the end of this month. And we're going to hear from what we call responders. These are people that have listened to all four of these webinars, put together their thoughts, and they're going to provide us their perspectives on what they heard and how we might develop recommendations, actions that this partnership could bring forward to further advance adoption. Great, great. So, talking about adoption um you know that's when you're in the industry i'm in and kind of at the end of this thing where we're manufacturing pipe and um speaking from a tile drainage standpoint how are you seeing the adoption how is that going and um what's happening there well that's a great question uh you know the practice that we know is controlled drainage drainage water management has different terminology but that practice has been around for probably over 20 years now as an NRCS practice standard, something that could be repeated across the landscape. And adoption, quite frankly, has been slow. 
And one indicator of that is uh, if you look at NRCS's Environmental Quality Incentives Program, that's the big federal cost-sharing program for producers, and you look at the data for the last 12 or 13 years, you'll see that only about 110,000 acres of adoption of controlled drainage has taken place uh, across the landscape. In contrast, there's a need out there for tens of millions of acres. We know there's that many acres that have tile drainage, probably about 60 or 70 million acres in the U.S. have tile drainage and could benefit from controlled drainage. So there's a huge gap between where we're at and where we want to get to. And that's why we're exploring these barriers uh, so deeply to try to get better at this and and get uh, more adoption on the landscape. And I suppose it's, possibly how you define a barrier but you know is 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 a bear do you guys consider a barrier cost sharing you know that if there's not cost sharing people just aren't going to do it because they don't have to or you know so either regulation or cost sharing yeah that's a perfect example of one and it has different aspects to it but uh, absent cost share certainly these practices have a return on investment over a number of years and they're additive too so if you added drainage or control drainage to tile drainage, uh, then you shorten your return on investment span. And if you were to add drainage water recycling, you even improve your return on investment. But what cost sharing does is obviously it defers or assists with some of that initial cost, which can be quite significant for a producer. And um, many times it can be up to 75% of the cost of the installation. So that is huge. And of course, I already mentioned EQIP and the federal cost sharing. But what we're starting to see is a lot more state agencies also providing cost share assistance. Iowa is a perfect example with IDOLS, their state agency. Maryland does it uh, to a significant degree. And we're even seeing private sector uh, cost sharing assistance coming into Heartland Co-op in Iowa there. um, Has some financial resources with some of these practices. They're assisting producers. Um, PepsiCo has done some work in Wisconsin. So it's coming from a variety of sources, but there's no question that cost sharing assistance is hugely important because of the expense of these practices. Kind of probably more of a personal question and how you see this, but do you see that continuing on the private sector where the private sector ends up, uh, you know, becoming a much larger um, part of the, uh, the whole equation? Yeah, I do. And, and uh, you know, private sector companies obviously want to also help the environment, want to help with production. And so the introduction of controlled drainage, drainage water management is a perfect practice where they can achieve both objectives and really assist their producers. So I see that continuing to grow, not just the for-profit companies, but the NGOs, the foundations, et cetera, in addition to the federal and state resources. Part of the problem with the federal resources is they're quite cumbersome for a producer to access. You have to go through an application process, a ranking process, develop a contract. You might get funding for the initial design, but not the implementation. can take multiple years. The advantage to the private sector resources, of course, it doesn't have any of those uh, strings and barriers and the burdensome nature of some of the cost-sharing programs. So uh, it's going to take both because the job is huge. But I do believe uh, the private sector is stepping to the plate in a significant way, and that's going to continue. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I, I think about um, often is just the challenges that are in our industry is that, you know, what happens when, when you have a 
um, whether it's uh, drainage water management or just a traditional tile system installed is it's it's out of sight out of mind you know once it's installed nobody knows it's there it's just doing its thing all the time so you forget about it or people don't understand how water moves within the soil and things like that um and the other part is our industry hasn't had a lot of innovation over the last several decades. It's it's uh, since plastic pipe. It's kind of plastic pipe, and you install it, and uh, you know several companies do that, and many many drainage contractors out there. What's happening on the innovation side? There has been small incremental things, but what's happening right now? Yeah, uh, there's quite a bit on the automation side, and I give a lot of credit to. Uh, uh, Charlie Schaefer, who many people know and is the president of AgriDrain Corporation, he's really introduced automation of controlled drainage in a very significant way and now has operational systems with producers across many states. Probably close to about 100 of these are now operational, benefiting typically 30 to 40 acres per system. But the automation is so important because it really reduces a lot of the producer burden. Producers are very busy, a lot on their table. Who wants to go out there and pull gates at the right time of year and, and manually do that? And so automation allows you to do that uh, either locally programmable or remotely. But the bottom line is the producer doesn't have to run out to the field to manage those gates. And it can, and it can be done automatically. You can also gather data, which helps to improve the, the management. A second piece of innovation I think that's taking shape, too, is decision support for producers. When do I move my gates? Uh, what's the appropriate time? What's the soil moisture le level I'm looking for? So there's quite a bit of work also taking uh, uh, shape on the decision support tool side for management. What role do you see uh, changing here a little bit, but do you see both the federal and state governments um, playing to assist farmers around conservation drainage? Yeah. Well, let me start uh, first with the state agencies, and I think Iowa is, is a great example uh, with their Department of Land Stewardship. They are offering financial assistance to producers, and quite frankly, it's less cumbersome than the federal mechanisms through EQIP. So we're starting to see some very active work by some of the state agencies. You know, a decade ago, that certainly wasn't there. That resource wasn't there, and it's pretty significant. On the federal side, I think they're working hard to try to improve uh, the nature of their program delivery. Um, part of the challenge is, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's, a, it's a very involved process and it takes a lot of patience and time on the part of a producer. So uh, I'm aware of some projects we have. Uh, an example would be in Minnesota. It's called a turnkey project. So what this one is, uh, Ecosystem Services Exchange is actually managing it and delivering it. It's 90% cost share from the federal agency from NRCS, 10% from ESC through in-kind services. And the producers are getting the systems applied on the ground without any actual out-of-pocket cost to them. And this is helping to demonstrate the effectiveness of controlled drainage and other practices and really helping to accelerate its implementation. So we're hopeful of seeing more of these innovative projects that get past some of the barriers and, and provide kind of this continuous stream of assistance for producers, get it on the ground quickly, not over two, three, four years of time, but in one season. Sure, sure. So, you know, question just I have for you, given your history and experience, uh, 40 years working in on these kind of things in the government mostly, um, 
What do you see changing, um, maybe changes that have already occurred, or how do you see the future around when it comes to um, the ability to work with other nonprofit groups, whether it's, you know, think people like Ducks Unlimited, um, Isaac Walton League, whoever it might be, but because of the data and because of the research, and as you gain more and more data, you gain more and more confidence, and hopefully others that maybe aren't on the same page as us, but maybe... They could be at some point. Do you have, uh, you know, do you have a lot of excitement about stuff like that starting to happen, or, or where are you personally at on that? What you see on the field? Yeah, I think there's a, a wealth of future opportunity there. And uh, one organization that comes to mind that we've worked some with is the Nature Conservancy on projects, and they've been very interested in Ohio in controlled drainage. And obviously they're very interested in the effects on Lake Erie and phosphorus and so forth. And this is an example of a conservation practice when used with the other conservation practices can really benefit that uh, desired outcome. So I I think uh, they're gonna play uh, just like the private for-profit sector, an increasing role. Um, Obviously you have groups like the Walton Foundation in Indiana, there's uh, Nina, Nina Pullman uh, charitable trust that has funded some of this work. Uh, and I think in the end, it does take this partnership. And part of our challenge is we've got to do a better job of educating these organizations about the multiple benefits of conservation drainage. And uh, in many cases, it's going to fit right in with their objectives of improved wildlife habitat, uh, improved water quality, et cetera. Yeah, super to me, that's super exciting to see, you know, the the fruits of so much labor and so much time and energy money that are that are gathering that data. And, you know, data's data's great. But when you can actually put it to work and uh, gain confidence of people that maybe were on a different page than you were, but um, when you can come together and, and on both sides. Right. I mean, if we're finding out things that that we've changed in our industry because we thought they worked and they didn't. Um, so on both sides of that, that's really exciting. And, um, you know, I hope that some of that can, that happens and I can see some of the fruits of that in my career yet, um, before, before that ends. So exciting. Um, what, you know, another question I have, sorry, I'm just pounding questions at you, Tom, but, uh, enjoy listening to your answers and, um, and all your knowledge that that you can bring to the podcast. But what are some of the improvements you think that are needed that will be helpful, in, you know, for the impacts for farmers? Well, that's a that's a great question because there are really many many improvements. You know, we've identified through this barrier assessment process probably fifteen or more significant barriers. Uh, but the first of those, I think, is is the whole education and awareness process. And not just producers, uh, even the agency folks that might work with them have limited knowledge of these practices and need a better understanding of them. So they can then help educate and promote to producers also. But that that's a simple example. Uh, another barrier I mentioned earlier is, is the bureaucratic nature of many of the programs. So it's very difficult to navigate that. And, and get to the outcome that you're looking for. Uh, in addition, um, alternative approaches, uh, as I mentioned, the turnkey approach is very important. That gets it on the ground quicker, easier. Uh, everything should be focused on how do we remove these barriers for producers. The, the reality is we all know the producers are the decision makers. They're the ones who bear the risk. 
And we've got to do everything we can as public and private entities to, to make this easier for them and get them into a state where then they can manage that water to optimize their results. Um, the other piece I think that's evolving is um, the climate change aspects related to conservation drainage. We know there's great resilience benefits from being able to manage your water, especially during drought periods, et cetera. There's also met some evidence that these practices uh, help with uh, reduction of gases uh, emissions. Obviously they increase nutrient efficiency, which is a good thing. So uh, the bottom line is multiple benefits. We've got to be able to articulate these and make them meaningful for the individual producer. Yeah, I think uh, I'm glad you mentioned that and around uh, climate change because many of the things that go on with um, with drainage and with managing your water, we, we've known for years, you know, trafficability and getting into the field you know, earlier or, um, and planting that crop two weeks earlier and the, the benefits that that has from the standpoint of yield increase. And, um, but when you combine those things with what's happening in our weather, um, you look at just right now, this spring in Minnesota, where I live, you know, April was terrible. I mean, we didn't, we didn't have any, um, days in which you could be in the field anywhere in Minnesota. It was cold. It was wet. And we've seen more of those Aprils the last 10 years than we have less. I mean, there's been more than than half of the Aprils in the last 10 years that have been just tough. And, and you got to go hard in May. But the fields that are properly have their water properly managed, they're getting in those faster. They're getting in those quicker. But when you combine conservation drainage with that, so you're also receiving the water quality benefits, um, it has a real impact on our environment that's really positive because now you're only going to that field once, you're planting it you know, once instead of going and then coming back to plant the 10, 15 acres you didn't get planted because it was too wet. So from a carbon footprint, all of that, if you're uh, if you have the proper drainage in place and you're doing it in, in a conservation drainage way, um, the benefits are are significant to, to the environment. Uh, no question about it. You know, management of soil water is so fundamental to everything. And I think in the last decade or so, with the emphasis on soil health, which is a great thing, it's kind of been forgotten that you also have to manage your water. Soil health alone on a tile-drained landscape is not going to create the optimum environment. So you have to actually manage that water. And um, I think I'd like to hear the federal agencies, particularly NRCS, talk more about the need for soil water management and the tools such as conservation drainage to do that additive to soil health, tillage practices, nutrient management, et cetera. You really need that, in my opinion, that whole system of practices that really get to the optimization of results. Yeah, proper amount of water in the soil is part of soil health, so... Agreed. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time on the podcast, uh, Tom. And anything you want to leave us with here on the water table? Kind of have the last word. Well, I really do appreciate this opportunity and and, uh, really want to emphasize again how important the management of the water on these tile drain landscapes is. We've got a great opportunity to further optimize benefits, and it's really going to take this public-private partnership approach I think we're at the precipice of some significant gains here and uh, looking forward to working with many others uh, to help producers with conservation drainage. So thank you, Jamie. 
Thanks for joining us on the water table. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. I have so much fun uh, recording these. I hope you have as much fun listening as I do recording. These episodes are available on all major podcast platforms as well as YouTube. So find them and download them when you can. Thanks for joining us.